Hi, this is Ellie Kushner, and you're listening to Dancewell Podcast. I was first introduced to the high rates of trauma in dance when I came across Erica Hornthal's article in Dance Informa titled, Practicing Trauma Sensitivity in Dance. It was thought-provoking. Looking for more, I learned of the research of Paula Thompson and Victoria Jacques, which found high rates of PTSD among the dancers they studied. A quote from their study, um, the PTSD group of dancers had higher levels of psychopathology, including anxiety, depression, dissociation, and shame, and they had more childhood adversity and adult trauma. Compared to the no PTSD group, the PTSD group had higher scores on fantasy proneness and emotion-oriented coping strategies. We've spoken to Paula Thompson on this podcast, and I highly recommend that you check out her research if you're not already familiar with it. But for this interview, I return to the person who first inspired me to think about trauma in dance, and that's Erica Hornthal. Erica is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a board-certified dance movement therapist. Erica is the founder and CEO of Chicago Dance Therapy, a group practice founded in 2011. As an expert on the intersection of movement and mental health, Erica has appeared in publications, on podcasts, and live news, and she's a columnist for Dance Informa, 30 Seconds, and Thrive Global. Erica understands that the body, mind, and spirit are interconnected and that life is experienced through movement. Her approach allows each client to express their feelings, experiences, and ideas with their whole body. Erica's areas of expertise include cognitive and movement disorders, neurological conditions, anxiety and depression, PTSD, trauma, including rape and sexual abuse, eating disorders, loss, and phase of life issues, including but not limited to caregiving. In this episode, Erica explains a bit about her field, which is dance movement therapy, and we discuss ways in which the body houses trauma, as well as how dance can be both problematic and curative to people who are living with trauma. I feel like there's so much more that we could have discussed together, but this is already dense with ideas, and I hope that it activates more conversations about trauma and dance, because I think it's an important issue for all of us to think more about. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological development, and today you are in for traction. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Erica, thank you so much for taking the time out of your um, busy life to do this with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, before we start talking about the the topic at hand here, which is trauma, could you just give our listeners a brief introduction to your field, which is dance therapy? Um, maybe just say a little bit about how dance therapists are trained and the work that you do on a day-to-day basis, because... I often have student dancers and retiring dancers come to me and express an interest in dance therapy and they ask, you know, do I know anything about it? Um, I don't know very much, but I have a few people I can point them to. Um, Mm -hmm. So I know that there's a lot of people out there who are really interested in the stuff that you do and would love to hear just a, a bit about what the career entails. Sure. So at the heart of it, dance movement therapy is a psychotherapy that uses movement to help integrate the individual's mind, body, and spirit. So when we talk about dance movement therapy, and and the reason why it's hyphenated um, dance movement is because years and years ago, um, so the field itself has been around for over 60 years, but maybe about 
30-ish years ago, if I'm correct on that, um, there was this knowledge that there were kind of, there was this camp of, of dance and there was this camp of movement. And so we use the terms dance movement so that it encompasses the dance therapists and the movement therapists. Now, personally, I think we're all the same. Um, we come from the same stock, but some people will focus more on dance and dance as expression, and others will focus more on movement and movement for expression. So that being said, to become a dance movement therapist, more traditionally, it is a master's degree program. So we're looking at a three, sometimes even four year degree. Um, some places will require some type of thesis. There is definitely one to two, I think some schools even have three different internships, um, somewhere between, I would say, 700 to 900 hours. And so once an individual receives either their traditional master's degree in dance movement therapy or goes through what we call an alternate route program, which is um, coupled with either a counseling program or maybe a, a program in social work, um, an individual is eligible to sit for registry or, or to apply for their registry as a dance therapist. And then after two full years of supervision underneath a licensed professional, um, you're then eligible to become board certified. So as a board certified dance movement therapist, that's really where people seek out private practice more than anything else. Um, you don't need to have all of your credentials. Um, I shouldn't say that. Um, board certification, I think, is, is the ultimate. Like, I would, I think that a lot of people strive towards that. But I do personally know a lot of individuals that went for board certification because they want to practice in a private setting. So what does that look like? To me, it's very similar to being a more traditional talk-based therapist. I see individuals, I do some groups. The difference is that we're not just focusing on the words that come out of the person's mouth. We are focusing on the 80 plus percent of communication that how that's housed in the body. And I think this is why trauma is such a hot topic. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but with the body, because there's so much energy around that right now. Um, it's not new. We know that everything is housed in the body, but there's so much talk about how trauma affects the body and how the body holds on to trauma that more and more people are seeking out this body-centered type of therapy. And that's really what dance therapy is at the heart of it. It's using the body, the wisdom, the knowledge, different movement um, habits and patterns to identify where the maybe issues um, lie. Great. Thank you for that. Um, now let's get into the topic of this episode. So you segued very nicely into trauma. Um, can you explain what trauma is? Yeah. I mean, I think very generally it's a disturbing or distressing experience. And so, or I guess that's kind of one aspect. The other aspect is maybe a physical injury, right? Like a car accident or traumatic brain injury, stroke, you know, lots of different, perhaps the pandemic that a lot of us are sitting <laughs> in right now, right? Like that is a trauma that's happening to us. Um, ultimately, what makes something more traumatic in terms of like a mental health diagnosis is how 
well or poorly we cope with the stress that comes up from that trauma. Because to be honest, I think everybody has trauma, but everybody copes with it differently. And if we can manage it on our own, that's one thing. If it starts to manifest in different ways that affect our daily living, that's when we need to seek more professional help. Great. And so I heard this distinction between like an experience and a response in terms of trauma, because like in the body, we'll talk about a a traumatic injury, like you just said, or a Mm -hmm. traumatic brain injury, um, which maybe is something that's acute or has a certain degree of severity. Um, But when we talk about trauma psychologically, like is the same event traumatic to all different people or is trauma more the experience that an individual has after enduring some incident that may or may not be traumatic to other people? I definitely believe it's the latter because if, you know, I'm even thinking of like an act of God, right? Like um, you're in a tornado, a hurricane, an earthquake, you know, fill in the blank, depending on where you live in the world. Um, some people will manage just fine. I mean, it's still a traumatic event, right? I mean, it's, I don't know that people find pleasure in a lot of those things, especially if there's devastation. Um, but people are going to manage differently and cope differently. So honestly, I think trauma is the result of this overwhelming amount of stress that exceeds our ability to cope. Right. Um, or, or limits our ability to like integrate the emotions that come up from the experience. So if I'm able to manage whatever feelings or emotions come up from that earthquake, let's say, then it may not be a permanent um, attachment to trauma, if that Mm -hmm, makes sense. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's maybe more fleeting. Fleeting, Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to it being something that is stuck, you know, that, that is part of me and has become, um, you know, it, it, essentially it's a freezes the stress yeah. cycle. Right, right. It's kind of like um, Groundhog's Day. You know, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the nervous system keeps playing the same thing over and over and over again. And we often hear that with people who maybe have panic attacks or flashbacks, um, you know, really debilitating like psychosomatic symptoms that may have nothing to do with the trauma, but because of how the body holds on to it, a certain trigger in the environment can trigger that same response. Right. Um, and I just want to reflect back, no, no question particularly, but you've kind of mentioned a couple yeah. things. One is coping. And then you also just said um, the ability to integrate that information. So I just think that that seems really relevant that um, when the information, when an event happens and it's traumatic and it's stressful, but you can kind of integrate that stress into your broader understanding of the universe, it's maybe less debilitating than if it's sort of is dissonant with, with that understanding of the world. Yeah. And, you know, integration is an interesting word. I think I certainly use it a lot. And I think perhaps as dance movement therapists, we're used to that word because the whole point, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but I think others would agree that the whole point of using movement is to help integrate what we're feeling. Right. It's not just let's dance it out. Let's feel good. Um, let's express ourselves. It's really meeting a need when words alone don't meet that need. That we have to go to the body where all of the experiences are housed. So, you know, whether it's 
taking an instance and embodying it so that we can feel it on a body level or starting with the body and finding a way to verbally express what that feels like there's an integration that happens between mind and body yeah yeah dance is I mean as a dancer I'm biased but I have to say I, there's nothing more integrating than dance right I mean in terms of the whole brain that's the whole the, body that's right. what I think <laughs> I mean, that's what studies have shown, you know, yeah. it's especially from like an exercise level that dance is, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'm, I know I've read articles, you know, that say like dance is the best form of exercise. And that's not just because there's physical, it's because like you said, it enhances social, cognitive, emotional, mental, it's yeah. everything. It's everything. Yeah. Um, and you, you just, you talked about in that answer, that last answer about how yeah, different people will respond to different situations in different ways. And um, last summer, I took a really great neuroscience class. It was just like an undergraduate level neuroscience, behavioral psychology class. And we learned mm-hmm. about, um, is it called the diathesis stress model, where, you know, basically, both design and environment come into play. Um, and they use the example of like, twins who both have the same um, brain design mm-hmm. that maybe includes like a smaller section of one lobe or a larger hippocampus or something. Um, the twin who then has a traumatic event becomes more von- becomes more likely to get PTSD. So that there's this like biological underpinning, but then the stress of the environment can then trigger the traumatic response. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it just, I think at at any point, you know, it is, we have that age old, like, environment versus, you know, biology and and nature versus nurture. And, um, you know, to say that there are certain people that are not prone to traumatic stress, I think would be incorrect. I think we all are. Um, It comes back to, you know, how have we been brought up? What kind of environment are we living in? But I think that there, it's very clear that there are biological markers that make us more susceptible. I think just like some of us are more susceptible to heart disease, you know, or dementia. I mean, there's a genetic component to that. And that even people from the same family can have very different mental health um, issues, but can also respond very differently to stressors. How do we measure trauma or how, how, do, how is it evaluated? Um, I mean, there are scales, you know, just like you would go to your doctor and get tested for something or, you know, a blood test for this. Or, I mean, a lot of it, um, there are, you know, self-surveys. There are questions that psychiatrists or, or psychologists or psychotherapists can conduct. Um, you know, I think in terms of like getting that official PTSD diagnosis, there are markers, right? Like we talk about um, extreme worry, panic, anxiety, there can be, you know, lack of sleep, there can be um, uh, flashbacks, there can be, you know, lots of different symptoms that, you know, there usually have to be um, several present to have that diagnosis. So it's not just one, because as I'm reading them off, some of those can be indicators of other of other issues. Um, but I, you know, I think it's also important for people to know that just because you have some of those, it doesn't mean that it's permanent and that getting help for them doesn't make you any less of a human being, right? It's not like, oh, I've been dealt these cards and this is just how I have to live for the rest of my life. There are real tangible ways that 
these um, symptoms can be tackled, so to speak, and, and can help somebody overcome them. So, you know, as far as like one way to measure it, there really isn't. There's a lot of different ways to, to measure the impact and the, the, the consequence that a traumatic event has on an individual. Okay, so um, going back to what we were speaking about just a moment ago in terms of different people having different responses and the vulnerability mm-hmm. of certain people or populations, um, I've seen this study with Paula Thompson, who has been a guest on our podcast and is fabulous, mm-hmm. and her research partner, Victoria Jacques, um, which found that dancers suffer from trauma at a much higher rate than athletes or the general population. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about the rates of trauma among dancers? Yeah, so as I've done a, a little bit of research myself, I was really um, kind of, sh- I don't know, I guess my first response was I was a little shocked to to see the difference. Um, but the more I sat with it, at least in my own experience, I thought, oh, actually, maybe that makes sense. So what I found um, just in gathering different research is that about it's, it's, it is a significantly higher distribution. It's like 20.2% um, over the general population. And that's, that's a lot. Yeah. So um, that was specifically with PTSD and dancers. So that's not necessarily, you know, that's, that's a more of a specific diagnosis. Um, but like I was saying, the more I sat with it, the more it actually, it actually made sense. And I guess for me, I know I haven't conducted research in this area, but just the experience that I've seen personally with clients and maybe even integrating it myself, you know, we have almost two ways of looking at this, if not more, but we've got the body, which houses the trauma. So if you are a dancer and you've experienced trauma in your life, when you move, it's very likely that you will access that trauma without even realizing it. Hmm. And because as dancers, we're always moving, right? Um, Sometimes not even the way we want to, right? We're told to move a certain way, we're instructed to move a certain way, our body is literally moved a certain way. Um, How how an artistic director or a choreographer speaks to us can be traumatic, it can resonate with a previous experience from a perpetrator or a family member. so, so we've got that, right? Because we're always working in our bodies and that's where the trauma is housed. On the other hand, I think there, this isn't always talked about either, but there's a lot of trauma that comes from body work. So if we're in the studio and we're criticized for how we look or we're not the right body type or um, there's, you know, a, classism there can be racism that plays in there can be different dynamics in the class itself or within the politics of the company that you're dancing in um there can be new trauma that's created from the dance environment so for me it's like this twofold right it's like and maybe that's why it's so much higher because we're already in the body which brings up trauma and if we already have that then we're compounding it with new trauma that may be coming in because I don't look like the other person and that fast enough, strong enough, thin enough, dot, dot, dot. Right. Um, for now, when you say that trauma is housed in the body, like I am a believer, I'm right there with you. Um, (laughs) but for the skeptics in our audience, for those who don't relate to that experience or, um, 
operate in that mind-body world. How do you explain that to people? Oh, that's a good question. I know. I'm um, sorry. I sprung it on you. No, no, no. Um, no, I mean, that's not the first time I've, you know, been asked to kind of speak to the skeptics. I guess I, there's like a little laughter in my head on some level because mm-hmm. I find that people aren't as skeptical anymore. And yeah. I don't know if that's because of like, you know, Levine's work and somatic experiencing. Maybe it's, uh, you know, Bessel van der Kolk wrote The Body Keeps the Score, which is like a huge bestseller. So yeah. many people have read that book. It's it's really normalizing the experience. And um, I think more often than not, light bulbs are going off because so many people have lived with trauma for so long and they can't understand why they're not overcoming it. Or it's like, oh, I've been in talk therapy for 10 years. I, I, I dealt with that. And then all you do is one body experience and it all comes back. So for the skeptics, honestly, I think it takes experiencing that, experiencing something on a body level, because it's not just in that, um, higher cognitive brain, right? Like we can talk ourselves out of it. We can pretend it's not there or, oh, that's, you know, that's that doesn't make any sense or that's not real but the minute you again go back to that word integration you try to integrate it into your body it's very evident that there's another component there's a deeper level to it so um this is not trauma based at all but um when i'm talking to audiences that have no idea what dance movement therapy is and this is not a dance therapy technique per se one of the first things i have people do is just sit in and understand and start to recognize how their brains are wired and how it impacts their movement. So, um, you know, for anybody listening, like if you just clasp your hands together, um, mm-hmm. you know, interlace it. your, yeah, interlace your fingers, you know, then you just notice which thumb is on top. If you start there and you just switch your thumbs and then switch, you know, your pointer, your middle, your ring and your pinkies, um, for most people, if you've never done this or you don't do it on a regular basis, it's not a very comfortable feeling. Mm -hmm. And then you just want to go back to the way it was. Right. Um, You can do it. Yeah. You can do it with your arms, you know, just cross your your arms. Yeah. Yeah, Your legs, Um, you know, arms are the best because it's a very evident, like I'll see people, I'll say, okay, cross your arms and people do. And then I'm like, all right, now put the other arm on top. And it's so funny because there's a good, (laughs) yeah. There's like a good half of the audience that, their arm just automatically goes back to where it was. It's like they have no control over their body. It's so interesting to watch. And then everybody kind of giggles and then has this look of like, oh my God, is there something wrong with me? And I just say like, this is you recognizing that your brain is wired a certain way and that impacts your movement. And that you can also change your movement to change your brain. And it's not just about exercise, but like practice writing with your non-dominant hand, brush your hair with it, Um, you know, Practice crossing your arms and legs a different way. Sit in that position with your hands clasped differently. And you'll start to feel that things don't feel as uncomfortable or that you can sit in the discomfort longer. And that, to me, is a really great way to start with the skeptics, you know, because you can't deny that there's a mind-body connection when you do that. Yep. I love it. You know, then they're like, well, psychological, this isn't psychological, but if you think about it, like lots of psychological things start to come up, right? Like you're frustrated, you become emotional, you know, like the doubt, the guilt, the what's wrong with me. Um, So even just manipulating how our bodies 
want to be and challenging that status quo within our body starts to bring up some psychological things for us. And that's always a great place to start too. Of like, so what is this like for you? What are you feeling? What comes up for you when you're just doing this simple experience? And again, any skeptics are, are quickly quieted. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> let me think about this. I'll get back to you. <laughs> um, I want to go back to talking about dancers, but I always need to be cautious, you know, when we use this term dance very broadly, um, because, of course, dance cultures vary vastly by genre and, you know, they're each as different as their unique aesthetics. And um, when we talk about dance and the sort of dance science and medicine world, I've said this before on this podcast, most of our research is on ballet dancers or maybe um, contemporary conservatory students, a little bit is creeping in from other cultures. Um, but, but we don't know about all these different cultures of dance that exist out there. So, um, can we just clarify sort of what dance forms you're thinking about when we move forward talking about dancers and what the research has been, um, what populations have been looked at in the research just so that we can be clear yeah. Um, well, oddly enough, it's in terms of dance movement therapy, it's not one specific genre. It, it may not even be a genre of dance at all. Um, and the important thing I think to note, especially in the field, is that we see movement as a core component of dance. So again, it speaks back to that dance slash movement therapy that I mean, I'll speak for myself. I think of it as a very general, like we all live in our bodies. Movement is in everything. And therefore, like if we're living, if we're breathing, we are moving. Generally, I can say, so then everybody is capable of some type of dance, but in the most authentic part possible, right? So people say, oh, I don't have any skill. I don't have any coordination. That's okay. That's your own internal dancer, right? It's everybody has their own rhythm, a different heartbeat. Um, there is no skill required. There's no expectation that you have to have some type of dance background. So this gets tricky from a research perspective because I think a lot of times people want to see that. Like what specific dance helps me out of depression? Right. What specific dance helps me connect my body? You know, there's a lot of research just with dance and Parkinson's disease, right? But again, I think that speaks to, or sorry, not just dance, tango and Parkinson's disease. But again, I think that speaks to what you were saying earlier about, or we were saying, you know, dance is just the, the best form of exercise <laughs> because it integrates so many different parts of us. And tango is one of the most complex, certainly footwork, um, ballroom dances, I think that, you know, many people would agree on. So it, there is this component of like, wow, you're really thinking, you're working hard, you're moving a lot. So it doesn't, I'm going to say for me, a certain type of dance doesn't really apply to the work that I'm doing. It does when a certain client comes in and says like, this is what speaks to me. Um, you know, even if somebody comes in and says, I've been a professional ballet dancer and I was just assaulted or, you know, I have a history of trauma in whatever realm, it might not be reasonable for us to think that ballet is going to be what helps them through that. Um, 
the way I look at it, and I think a lot of my colleagues would agree, it's about embracing what we call our movement repertoire. So if your movement repertoire is, let's say as a ballet dancer, is strictly ballet, the body gets very used to those movements. So what if we started to explore something more hip hop based, right? What if we were grounded and um, looser or we're, we're strong and we're popping and we're locking? Anytime we do movement outside of what we're normally, what we're used to, it has a way of increasing our resilience, right? Mm-hmm. We've, we've increased our movement vocabulary. We're increasing the way our body moves and then we can handle things in a different way. Because like if I'm rigid and everything that's thrown at me is always dealt with in a very rigid way, how is that going to help me through a really difficult time? Consequently, if my, lo- if my movements are always loosey-goosey, you know, and very unstructured, and all of a sudden I have to really plan for something or I have to be very um, task-oriented to get myself through a really hard situation, that's also going to be difficult. So if I can come at it from both ends and I can be that really strong, you know, um, precise, controlled mover, but I can also find the end of the spectrum where I get to be loose and fluid and, um, you know, grounded and I don't know, maybe also strong in a different way. What does that say for my ability to cope with different emotions? Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. I do want to make one distinction because, um, like, I just want to clarify for listeners that like a person can be a very loosey goosey mover, but actually have a very task oriented cognitive way about them. So it's not like all people who have stiff bodies have stiff minds or something, but it's just, you're saying that, you know, we take information into our body and we take it into our mind and maybe your mind is very task oriented, but if your body is very loosey goosey, then there's a certain way that you take in information through your body consistently in a very specific way, which has strengths and weaknesses. Is that right? Um, yeah. I mean, so what you're speaking to is almost a disconnect, uh, right? Uh-huh. It's like, which, which, which is huge. I mean, most of people walking around these days, like do have a mind body disconnect. So, and that's not just to say like, I'm, we can be disconnected from our bodies. That's one thing, but you can also have a disconnect that, that happens between like what the mind is saying and what the body is saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so yes, I mean, you could in some respect have a very, maybe, I don't know. Um, I, I keep thinking the word focused. I don't know if that's the like right word. Direct but yes, and you indirect could be, is like the law. Yes. Term. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, but I think more often than not, it's harder or less common to have that than it is to see congruency between the two. Okay. So I'm, I'm just thinking like, just maybe for the audience, even like people listening, you know, how, which, which is more common in your day to day, seeing somebody who, you know, is very strict but loose in their body or very strict, I, I but do, like really tight. I guess I do see that because I think of like all these dancers who are so hypermobile, <laughs> but are also like very kind of rigid and systematic in terms of how they approach their training or, or a problem or something, you know? Right. So, and that's what complicates or almost like adds a complex layer because 
we're talking about the body being, how do I, we're not necessarily talking about authentic movement in that respect. Yeah, right, right, right. Like, trained movement because, versus, yes, right, yeah. There, that's, that's a great way to put it, yes, trained movement, right? Like I, I mean, I'm not saying I personally, but I'm speaking for, for a dancer. I'm a professional dancer and whatever that choreographer wants me to do, I can do, or mm-hmm, I'm gonna try, mm-hmm. right? So, and, but that's also like, I'm glad you brought that up because that's also, I think something that comes up within the dance community is like, oftentimes we can end up, this is a harsh word, but sacrificing a piece of ourselves because we're embracing movement that is not our own. Mm -hmm. And it's different if it comes from an authentic place. Like if you have done a lot of body work and you know what's you and what isn't, you have an easier way of transitioning between those two. Right. 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 But so many dancers kind of one in the same. Yeah. Right. Right. There is no boundary setting. You Mm -hmm. know, we Mm -hmm. maybe have good, we have good, like, okay, this is what I do in the studio. And this is what I do at home. Those are boundaries, but we don't have good body boundaries. Right. So how do I make the distinction? How do I transition myself from, you know, this choreography piece and then go back home again. What if the choreography is a traumatic piece of choreography? What, I mean, in high school, I remember it was one of my favorite pieces, actually. It was choreographed so beautifully, but in high school, I remember somebody choreographing a piece around body disorder, uh, uh, eating disorders and and like body dysmorphia and um, just embracing and kind of moving through that. Everybody had, um, the choreographer had basically chosen different characters to embody different diagnoses. Um, and what would that be like if I'm stepping into a disorder that is mine, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't move that way, you know? So like here somebody is telling me this is what bulimia is supposed to feel like. This is right. what it looks like when that's not been my experience, right? right. Or, or you know, whatever the, the person may be diagnosed with. So, so I, I kind of got us off on a tangent, but um, I think that's all to say that there isn't necessarily one right. Like just because I'm rigid of mind, it doesn't mean I'm rigid of body. But I think that happens more often than not, right? Like how easygoing is someone going to be when you just notice their own habits in their body are very direct and very stiff. Um, but that's to say that like, well, what if we increase our repertoire? What if that very stiff, direct person starts to move in a more indirect way can we change the way the mind thinks and to to me that's a definite yes and it's not about one or the other it's finding the spectrum like yes I can be expanding the possibilities right I can be super focused and tight and direct oh but I can also embrace this other side that I might not like as much but that's where the resilience lies that's where our possibilities of coping through these traumas can really play a big effect because it's not just one way of being. And if I can't think of what that's going to look like, I can embrace it in my body and find different ways to to move through that. Got it. Um, So going back to the high rates of trauma in dance, I, I find that so interesting because I just think there's so many layers and um, we always have this question of like, when we see a figure like that, the next question is, well, is dance traumatic or are people who have experienced trauma self-selecting into dance, right? So in this case, I can so totally see both, <laughs> you know, like yeah, dance, actually me too can, when you said that. <laughs> dance can be very traumatic 
in terms of the training experience, but also um, people who have experienced trauma could be very drawn to dance where they can kind of go into a world where they don't have to speak and they can process things through their body in a way that, you know, is very expressive and individual. And then also, also I'm thinking that because the expectation for self-expression is high and there's this, you know, there might, perhaps it would be safe to say that dancers are a fairly sensitive population, which sometimes can make them resilient, but sometimes can make them vulnerable. Um, that sort of sensitivity to uh, different details of their environment that could then make them more traumatized. So I'm just seeing like so many ways in which that trauma rate could be high. What are you seeing in your um, in your practice and in your experience with the literature? Oddly enough, in my practice, I don't see a lot of self-proclaimed dancers. Um, I will say that the, the times I've been able to talk to a group of dancers, like maybe it's a, a workshop or a health fair, um, at first there's a real hesitancy to use the body outside of Mm -hmm. that that professional skill right like we were talking like that trained experience right and I get that because like what if my own body awareness inhibits or impedes my ability to perform right like all of a sudden I have so much body awareness that I can't get back to that place of trained you know trained movement Um, I see the opposite. I've noticed for myself that the more in touch I am with my own body and the needs that I have and listening to it, I've become a better dancer. And again, I'm not a professional, but I've, you know, I've worked on like finding balance, right, of mind and body. And so truthfully, it's like when I feel more balanced in life, I'll go to the dance studio and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God. I used to not have, like, I'd fall out of my turn so easily. What's going on here? I'm actually balanced now, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I think, again, we have to think about that mind-body connection that it's not just a physical training, but if we can really balance our mind, um, they can work together. Absolutely. So Yes. I see that with stability all the time. I always yeah. would tell students, like, well, stable, having stability is a mechanical, you know, biomechanical term but it's also a term in life, you know, financial stability, mental stability, like these are not separate entities that have no relationship to one another. Like if you have instability in your life, you're carrying that in all different ways. Yes. And then again, like you said, carrying it. So think about how that carries over. If you are housing your financial instability, right. And you bring it to the dance studio, like you know, it's not, it's not as easy as like, well, leave it at the door. You know, people always say that, like, leave your worries out there, but your worries come in with you because they're in your body. You can't just just not think about it and pretend that they're not there. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, again, I think that's why there is this prevalence of trauma because there is no distinction. I mean, it is in you. And when you move your body, it naturally becomes accessed. So if you have ways of managing that and coping with it, great. 
but a lot of us don't because like we just talked about within this and it's not just dancers like it would be the same thing I think if you know musicians going to music therapy or artists going to art therapy um you know we call it dance because we do want to represent that art form you know we are the the dance art form there's music there's therapy there's drama there there's art there's drama therapy um you know we we work in in movement and that from an art perspective tends to be dance but um but yeah the work that we do i think is so much out, outside the realm of dancers it's almost like i think a lot of us would love to work with more dancers but again there's like that that hesitation often um and um and yeah, I think just just talking about mental health in the dance world is often taboo. Right, so, we're just getting there for sure. Right, right. It's like, well, we'll break down that barrier, and then you know, perhaps more dancers will be open to, excuse me, um, a more you know embodied approach to therapy. Because to me, it really makes sense. Like, you know, you may as well really know yourself, know the body that that creates this, this beautiful aesthetic. So what, um, I have several questions, but I'm going to try to wind down with, um, how might a dancer be experiencing trauma? Like how can a dancer know if, if they have PTSD or trauma or, or a more mild case of trauma and what can they do about it? Both in terms of like, what kind of resources should they seek out, but also like, do you have any sort of generally applicable exercises, thought experiments that might be helpful? I think first and foremost, um, like to, to address your first question in terms of like, how might it present itself? So outside of, you know, anxiety or flashbacks, you know, the things that you can go and, and Google and find like on, you know, WebMD, um, I think first and foremost, it comes down to, is it impacting what was your normal way of living, right? So if I'm taking a dance class and I'm able to get through it and it brings me um, the same emotions that it would normally, like say I, I, I go to this class, I feel joyful. I go to this class, I feel joyful. Something's happened. I go to this class and all of a sudden the joy that was once there is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it It takes it takes the ability to self-reflect. And so I think that's the first thing we need to do is find a way to reflect on what has changed, if anything has changed. Um, not just the symptoms, but kind of like, like I'm feeling anxious, okay. Well, was the anxiety there before? Yes. Okay, is it different? Is it, is it impeding anything? You know, kind of going down the line. But if, you know, clearly there are these new symptoms that are popping up, and something traumatic has recently happened. It's a good indicator that you're not coping with it the the, the best way that you could, and that perhaps it would be helpful to find um, a professional to talk through that. And it doesn't have to be a movement therapist, so to speak. You know, I mean, there's wonderful resources out there. So many therapists that are just so well versed in trauma. Um, but I guess just knowing that there is the possibility of working with somebody so that you can get back to the dance studio. You know, I know a lot of people that are like in therapy, but it's almost like they have to stop dancing while mm-hmm. they're exploring it because it's just too difficult to do both. Yeah. So, you know, what if there was a way to work with someone through that so you can actually continue to be in your body while you're handling these really difficult, um, you know, anxiety, uh, emotions and feelings that are coming up. 
also just hearing you say that, like, I, you know, that mind body connection is like the reason why I dance, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's, it's everything. So I think it's hard. I think that is one of the hurdles to mental health that exists in dance. Like I found Alexander technique to be therapeutic in a Mm -hmm. cognitive way, in a mental health, emotional way because it went through the body, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and so I think that disconnect of like, let's just talk about your brain and your thoughts. It can be effective for sure. And I don't want to, you know, minimize the effectiveness of that kind of talk therapy, but it does sound appealing to work with a therapist who really treasures and values that mind body connection at the level that I know it and, and experience it. Yeah. And and I also think that's what sets movement there dance movement therapy apart is that it's not just about here are some exercises we're going to go through. And if you do them on a regular basis, you'll start to feel better. I mean, there may be a component to that, right? Like we can suggest different interventions, but at the heart of it, it's really about getting to know your own body, your own movement. And so, um, it does take a little bit of vulnerability, you know, to be with someone else. It's not just about sharing thoughts, right? Because if you don't want to talk about something, I can't force you to talk about it. Right. But being present to your own body or being with a therapist who, when there are no words coming out, can still say, I'm noticing this. What does it feel like to be in your body right now? Um, you know, and, and, and just like we've seen with other somatic therapy techniques, we can do breathing, right? We can notice our breath. We can manipulate the breath. We can work with our nervous system, right? To help calm it down. Um, But I think one of the wonderful things that movement therapy provides is just a a safety, um, is that the right word? An ability to create a safe container to just be present to what's happening in your own body. Um, and going with that, you know, so something that people can try at home is like simple body, well, I don't want to say simple, but a body map, or even just asking yourself, like, what do I feel? And how do I know I'm feeling this in my body, right? Like we can say, I'm so happy right now. Okay, well, outside of recognizing this emotion, because you felt happy before, how do you know you feel happy? Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult, because people really have to sit back and they're like, well, my head tells me I'm happy, but like, I don't know, what does happiness feel like in my body? You know, it's like, okay, wait, oh, my heart's kind of fluttering or, oh, I can feel the blood running through my veins. Maybe, yeah, like, oh, I feel lifted or my eyes are bright. You know, the same thing can be said for a a negative emotion, you know, maybe fear or anxiety, um, panic, you know, like these, these things that come up more often in trauma so that, when you're doing it for yourself, it's not, we don't want to re-traumatize, right? You don't want to throw somebody into like a panic attack or a flashback, especially alone, you know, um, which is, can be a wonderful thing. Like when you're with your therapist, if something should happen, you're in a safe space to, to move through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just starting that awareness piece, right? Of like, how do I know what I'm feeling? You know, I just had breakfast with a friend. How do I feel about that? Ooh, 
I feel good. Okay. How do I know what good is? You know, or I just had a really difficult conversation with, uh, you know, the, the creative director of my company and I was feeling good, but now I'm feeling confused. How do I know? What does confusion feel like in my body? Right. So we start to have a baseline, you know, and it's not just emotionally, but it's a physical baseline of, well, this is what I usually feel like. And when there's, there's a shift, I need to question that. Like, I don't have to just go with, I would say the status quo. So just challenge what you're feeling on a semi-regular basis and start to understand where that's coming from. And so we can also map it too. Like you can pinpoint places in your body where you're feeling something, especially tension, stress, anxiety, um, and we may see commonalities, but everybody has their own way of mapping that, you know, maybe like, oh, my calves are really tight. Or I had a client yesterday actually pinpoint four different areas of the body. And when we really went through them, it turned out that two of them were purely physical. You know, she, I was like, is this a psychological uh, manifestation? And She's she was like, like, no, I wore heels and went to a right, wedding last right, night. Right, right, <laughs> right. She's like, well, I mean, maybe a little, but like my calves are really sore because I was on my feet for eight hours yesterday. Okay, great. So let's keep going. Like, where's another piece? And she could say, okay, this part, this part is psychological. This is the spinning. This is the tension. This is the, the questioning. This is the trauma that's coming up. And it also allows you to let your body start to do the talking because that's the important piece too. Like we want your, we want you to start to understand your own body's language. Um, so, so again, self-reflection, awareness, you can try some of these just mapping um, body, <clears throat> excuse me, like kind of individualized body mapping. Um, you know, and I'd say do it before because sometimes when we're in a trauma or we've experienced a, tra a trauma, it's almost too late to know what our baseline is. Yeah. We have and to we have confusing to information and it's yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We have to backtrack. So, and that's possible. I mean, that's what a lot of us movement therapists do. We're like, all right, this is your baseline. Now we need to get back to whatever it was before, you know, and like that's, that's the trauma. We got to piece that out. Um, but like, I just love preaching, you know, figure out your body now, like become body aware now so that when things happen, we have a baseline. Great. Um, is there anything else you want to share or say, um, things you think about in terms of trauma and dance? Um, anything else you um, want to preach? Yeah. Right. Um, well, I like to always say that the body has answers to questions that the mind doesn't even know to ask. So if you're asking yourself questions, looking for answers, know that the answers lie in the body and that your body is trying to speak to you. It's trying to talk to you. But if you don't, if you're not fluent in body, if you're not fluent in your own body, um, you're going to keep missing the boat. Um, and that's, I think, one of the beauty, one of, one of the beautiful parts of working with a therapist that is housed or, or more not housed, that's more um, fluent with I'm going to use kind of quotes like body language because it's not about it's not about, you know, quantifying body language. It's not like, oh, if you have your arms crossed, this means this or if you're scouring, this means this. It's being with somebody that helps you understand your own your own body's language and how you express yourself or don't express yourself through your body. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's more general. Like that's not just because of trauma. And. I think I just posted this actually today or yesterday, like 
don't wait for a trauma to occur to start learning more about your body because it's not just about trauma. I mean, I am, I'm working more and more in trauma only because clients have started to come with me and want to work in their body. They're recognizing that the years of talk therapy have helped, but there's still a huge piece that's missing. So I recognize that there are lots of trauma specialists out there that can speak way more than I can about trauma specifically. And I've just had this wonderful natural progression into this work because of what clients have come through the door, you know, and, and I really, I really enjoy that. Like I, I have really enjoyed the work that I've been able to do. And I just, I guess I kind of want to pay homage to the people who really are doing the research, who are really doing the work in trauma, because sometimes a lot of us just, just kind of happen into it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But it takes it all, you know, research. We we know that for sure that divide between research and applied practice, it takes all kinds of it. Right. I think you may have just made like 25 new dance therapists out of this podcast. (laughs) I feel like there's going to be a handful of listeners who are going to get off of this podcast and go Google Masters of Science in Dance Therapy right now. Nice. <laughs> um, actually, I'll say, I will say one thing. So this summer, we were I was supposed to be hosting a dance therapy advocacy summit. I know. Um, but but yeah. um, we're doing it online. Great. So if anybody is interested, um, they can learn from a lot of other dance therapists who have so much more to say than I do on lots of different topics. Um, and it'll still be the same time. It's the middle of June. Um, so I can make sure that you have the information. But if anybody's interested, they, I mean, all they have to do is log onto their computer and they can start learning more about, you know, this this hot topic if if they are really thinking about going into the field. Yeah, I, I have a few students who I'm going to send that to. So we'll include a link cool. to that on our website. Um, and then do you want to sign off with your contact information for anyone who may want to reach out to you for more information? Sure. Um, so, um, you know, people are welcome to email me if they just have a few questions that they want to, you know, have answered. It's just Erica at Hornthal is my last name, H-O-R-N-T-H-A-L.com. Um, I feel like now because we are, we are home and a lot of us are keeping busy, we're on social media. You can always find me there. So Erica Hornthal on Facebook or Instagram, those are the two that I tend to, um, tend to post the most on, um, or my website, which is just ericahornthal.com. Excellent. All of those will be in the show notes and they'll be on our website. Erica, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, I, I hope it does create some new dance therapists. That would be great. That wasn't my intention, but that's always amazing. (laughs) You were very convincing. (laughs) Good. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation 
To dance well, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.